projects that you can demonstrably show are every incremental megawatt hour is causing a coal plant to shut down have enormous carbon impacts. And so this gets back to your point of renewable energy is not an end, it is a means to the end. Our end goal is reduced carbon. Welcome to Climate Positive, a podcast produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions. I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. In this series, we host candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate-positive future. The U.S. power markets are evolving. Three factors, one, the increasing penetration of generation from more intermittent renewable resources, two, an increasing number of extreme weather events, and three, the influx of new, especially corporate buyers and sellers into the market, together are driving the development and adoption of new contracted revenue structures, risk management strategies, and products to measure emissions at a much more granular level. Born and bred to be an environmentalist, Lee Taylor founded Resurity nine years ago to develop new critical data analytics and risk management products to address these challenges faced by buyers and sellers in these markets. So in this episode, I dive deeply into the shift of focus from commodity price risk faced by fossil generation to volumetric risk faced by renewable generation. I also speak with Lee about Resurity's exciting new locational marginal emissions product, which, by measuring emissions at a localized level, seeks to drive investment to clean energy projects that have the highest impact on reducing carbon. Note that Hannon Armstrong is with a client of an investor in Resurity. Lee, thank you very much for joining us here at Climate Positive. Thanks very much for having me on. Excellent. Well, I know you previously said that you were born and bred to be an environmentalist. Tell us a little about your childhood experiences and how that came to be. Short answer is is my parents. So growing up, my dad was a science and environment reporter for the Seattle Post Intelligencer. And my mom, particularly when I was younger, was a producer for National Geographic and then worked with a salmon restoration group called Long Live the Kings. So dinner uh, table conversation was around, you know, the latest plight of the spotted owl or impact on Pacific Northwest ranching on salmon runs. And so I was born and raised to, to be thinking about those things and expectations were set that I was going to have to help do something about that. So that was sort of my upbringing. Excellent. And then your first jobs right of undergrad were as research and investment analysts. And I think you previously said you really honed your data analytics skills there. So how did these early career experiences solving problems using big data shape your eventual entry into the energy and climate spaces? My first job, I did econometric forecasting, most commonly for antitrust prosecution, which is a very long way from energy or climate. But it was huge data sets that needed to be crunched to get insight and tell stories that were not necessarily obvious. And so I think, you know, if you're in the energy industry, particularly today, like you're in the data business, Uh, there's just an enormous amount of information being released, you know, every five minutes at locations all over the place. And so the ability to sort of harness that volume of data to drive high impact actions and support the workflows of what everybody working in the clean energy industry in particular today need to do, you know, that was my, my training ground for working with lots of data. And then you did go back to business school, I believe, to pivot your career specifically to the renewable energy space. And you spent a summer with the GE Renewable Energy Leadership Program. I actually also was in a, I was at the Terraform Renewable Energy Leadership Program that was modeled after that one. So I, I have experience. I did stay with Terraform after and was with the company for a few years. But you decided to leave that program and right out of business school, launch your own entrepreneurial venture. 
Could you tell us why you made this rather big leap from a rotational leadership program in a large industrial company to a startup? It was definitely not my plan. So, you know, applying to business school, a big part of it is, you know, you writing down what you want to do after business school and how business school helps you get there. And my application said I either wanted to work in GE in their rotational program or PG&E in their renewables-focused rotational program. That, that was it. Those are the two jobs I wanted coming out of school. And it's basically the polar opposite of, of starting a company. And so I was able, lucky enough to get accepted to the GE program, which was great. And I still have a lot of close contacts from you know my fellow intern class, as well as, as colleagues I worked with or worked for there. And so really, it was just the reason I didn't go back to GE was what seemed like a unique opportunity that had presented itself. So I, I went to Tuck for business school. In your first year, you have to have an independent study where you work with a group to sort of solve a problem outside of the purely academic context. And so that was where I sort of started working on this concept of the fuel risk of energy markets changing. And so it used to be that everybody was working to manage the spark spread, sort of the cost of the thing you were going to buy and then burn relative to the value of power to, you know, this new challenge of your fuel always being free, but when and how much of that fuel is going to show up is something that you don't control and is sort of a new risk that was not very well understood or managed. And so Fell in love with that concept academically, wrote a paper on it my second year, and then started talking to the, some of the sponsors who supported that project, Nafila Climate in particular, and asked why this solution wasn't you know, coming out of academic concepts. And the view was that nobody was, was doing it yet. And so that opportunity was there and, and, and jumped on it. So it wasn't the plan, but opportunity knocked. And so I gave it a shot. How long did it take you to come up with the name Resurity? Sometimes businesses go through multiple names when they're getting started. Did you, did you have the similar experience? So we, we started out named Westeva, started the company with the former CEO of three-tier, uh, Kenneth Westrick. And so Westeva was coming out of, partly out of his name. But we, we wanted to focus specifically on the concept of this was renewable energy risk management. And so the idea was we wrote down all of the words that were associated with risk management and combined them with renewable energy and found the one where the website was still available. And that's where Resurity <laughs> came from. So it was renewable energy surety uh, was, was the birth of that name. Yeah, having your own .com name is, is very important <laughs> to start a new venture. Yeah, I was a little, little shocked at how many names had been snatched up at the time. <laughs> but we, uh, Resurity served us very well. So it's been a good, good name. And to initially fund Resurity, you raise capital from friends and family, of course, and, and a program called Upstart. Can you tell us more about how Upstart works and, and how important it was or, or was not in your ability to get the business off the ground? So Upstart is still an active business. They've changed their business model. They're more of a traditional lender today. At the, at the time, they had basically a, a revenue sharing agreement structure with individuals and so basically, you could securitize yourself. They would price you effectively and say, you know, every 1% of your next decade's worth of personal income is worth X dollars today. And you could then sell those shares in your future income. And so I did that program. I was either their first or second class. I think they only did two or three. And then that business model, I think in part because it was written up as being the tech version of indentured servitude, although I would disagree <laughs> So that was, that was how it worked and raised capital that way. And it was super important at the time of the company for, for two reasons. So one, it was just cash in the door and 
We were not spending a lot of money in the early days, but starting a business does take money. And so it was important from that perspective. But it was actually also a really important signal to prospective institutional investors. So when you walk into a, a pitch for investment, I think you know most of the time the party on the other side of the table is trying to decide which of two types of entrepreneurs you are. One is like, you know, I'm here with an idea. And if you give me enough money to pay my salary out of the gate, I will work on it. The other is, you know, here's my idea and I'm going to do it with or without you. And if you'd like to get on board and help me do it better or faster, great. And every investor with good reason is looking for the latter. And so this was a very good way for me to signal that I was in that camp. I was doing this with or without institutional capital so much so that I was willing to securitize myself to get it started. So it was useful for capital and, and a signal. And I have happily since then bought out from under that obligation. But it was, it was a, great, a great start for Resurity and a great program. You mentioned, you know, Basically, the the primary problem that your company initially, when it was founded, was trying to solve, which was the move from commodity price risk, so you know the the price risk of of the various fuels that went into fossil fuel generation, to resource or volumetric risk. So you have free resource in wind and solar, basically, but you don't know how much you're going to get with any particular certitude. So could you tell us about how you use that problem you're trying to solve and developed solutions, risk management solutions, I think you're calling them now, to the customers to address this issue? Yeah, so it started, it was sort of an evolution. We, we tracked the evolution of the, of the renewables industry. So when we started the business, weather risk really meant annual generation. And so, you know, the assumption was that every wind or solar project signs a PPA, at the time, that was 2010, 2011, so mostly utilities signing contracts and so signing them at uh, the interconnection point so there's no congestion risk. So that your main and really your outside of the operating cost of the plant, your, your primary residual unhedged risk is, is how much power are you going to generate in a given year. And that's a function of both sort of prediction accuracy, what is the average, the correct average output over the next decade or 20 years. And then also you have the interannual variability, month to month and quarter to quarter variability, which can, can be quite significant. And so the view was that there weren't yet tools to effectively manage that risk. So if you said, yeah, well, I'm going to build this project and my revenue, if I hit my expected generation or my P50, as people refer to it on wind or solar, then my revenue is, you know, 10 million. But if I have a bad year, it might only be seven million. And you know, there's all sorts of different reasons from a capital stack perspective that that level of financial volatility is, is not attractive. So how do you solve that? And so the starting point for us, which we only persisted in for a pretty short period of time, was, was weather risk or intermittency risk at the annual level. But right at the time we were starting Resurity, the renewable power markets in particular were going through this fairly significant change where the primary buyer of that power was shifting away from utilities and more towards you know some combination of sustainability or financially motivated buyers so you had Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and BP trading power you had Microsoft and Google buying power from either physically or increasingly commonly financially through VPPAs and so that shifted the weather risk to something that started to become more hourly, because if you are a data center operator and you are trying to service that load with a wind farm, you're constantly buying more or less power than you need in any given hour. 
uh, because of the intermittent nature. And because of that, that VPPA can underperform effectively as a hedge on your energy cost because you're buying something that is different from the shape profile that you're consuming based off of hourly weather patterns. Relatedly, if you've you know sold your power in a fixed quantity basis, so you've committed to specific delivery per hour to a trading desk, which historically, or at least prior to this year, was the main way that people traded power, even in renewables with a commodity desk, you then had this risk that you know you had agreed to deliver 20 megawatt hours to commodity desk XYZ, and the wind dies or a cloud comes over and you haven't generated any, so you have to go buy that power in order to deliver it. And so weather risk went from being annual to being hourly. And that just overnight really increased the risk profile of buyers and sellers of renewables and created this need for solutions to both sort of quantify, predict, understand that from sort of an information perspective, and then to manage it. How do you have tools that give certainty of revenue or certainty of cost to folks who need it as buyers and sellers of of intermittent generation? That's a great overview. And you mentioned PPAs, power purchase agreements. Traditionally, uh, especially these renewable power projects would sign long-term, oftentimes even 30-year contracts. You know, you basically have a, a fixed price for whatever volume you can deliver, and it's, uh, it's often a take-or-pay sort of arrangement. But contracts have evolved away from that, I think, more recently, sort of shorter-term PPAs and, and other sorts of contract structures like a proxy revenue swap was one that I believe you're involved with. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of those contract structures and and how you're involved in facilitating that? Yeah, happy to. So the first product that we worked with in risk management was a proxy revenue swap, and it was basically a, a PPA with a hedge on annual generation. So back to the commentary I gave earlier about, you know, we started with annual generation risk and then moved to annual and hourly generation risk. So when you sign a PPA, uh, you still have that same risk we talked about earlier, that if you have a good wind year or a bad wind year or your P50 estimate was off, you have this significant residual amount of revenue volatility, even if you've locked in your price per megawatt hour of power. And so a PPA, at least the majority that are signed today, virtual power purchase agreements, our contract for differences on energy price. And so you lock in a price of energy, but how much of that energy you sell is uncertain. A proxy revenue swap is a contract for difference on revenue. And so it hedges both your volume of generation over a given period. Sometimes they settle quarterly, sometimes they settle annually, as well as the price risk. So a proxy revenue swap is like a PPA, but with additional risk reduction. We've got customers who prefer one versus the other. Some really are uncomfortable with holding the risk that they could have, you know, their P50 estimate could be off or that they could have a couple of years at the start of the project's life that had a a low end resource. And so they value the risk transfer of a proxy revenue swap and pay the premium to shed an increased amount of risk. If you own a portfolio of assets or buying from a portfolio, or you just are comfortable with that volatility, you know, where you can sort of self-diversify the weather risk, or you're comfortable holding that volatility and you say, I really want to manage my hourly uh, energy price and shape risk, but I'm comfortable holding my residual sort of annual generation uncertainty risk, then a PPA is, is appropriate to you. So I think as an industry, we're seeing this transition to more of a menu of options as both buyer and seller, right? So the traditional 30-year bus bar settled utility PPA was where we started. Everybody used the same contract effectively. Today, 
you've got physical PPAs and virtual PPAs and proxy revenue swaps and buyers of power will then sometimes manage their own risk with settlement guarantee agreements or volume firm agreements, depending on whether they are trying to lock in PPA settlements or firm them into a block as a more effective hedge. So, you know, everybody in the ecosystem has a different risk tolerance, has a different goal. And so we're, we're approaching a more sophisticated set of tools for, for the market to use, depending on risk, appetite, financial goals, et cetera. Right. And so in addition to differing risk appetites and the existing annual and hourly weather variation, we've had you know an increase in extreme weather in various places. And in February, actually, of this year, Winter storm Uri significantly impacted power markets, especially in the southeastern U.S. ERCOT, Texas, was the most notable example of that. There were widespread power outages and power price spikes. So could you tell us a little bit about these impacts generally on the markets? Who lost money? Who made money? And how they are really changing the types of products and risk management services that customers are looking for? The short answer is it was... A huge impact, right? So the just the scale, I mean, I think the history of ERCOT, you'd had a handful of hours in the last 11 years, or certainly since they increased the cap to $9,000, where we were actually spent any time at $9,000, and then went from a handful of hours in the past decade to basically three and a half days straight of $9,000 power. So there was no precedent for what was experienced in February, and it had huge impacts in terms of who who won or lost financially, it, it really just comes down to were you a net generator or net buyer of power during each hour in those three and a half days. And so if you were a net generator, you had a fantastic week. If you were a net consumer of energy and so you were short power prices, you, you had a pretty painful week. And so I think the impact that has had on the industry is first and foremost, I think it sort of unified the industry as a whole around the the risk of weather intermittency and the impact that has both on demand and supply and what that means for financial risk. And so, you know, when we go back to the years we spent offering risk management tools pre-February, it was really a mixed bag. Some people said, hey, you know, I just, I think that, you know, August of 2019 was a one-off heat wave will never happen again. And there's just not that much volatility. And so why would I hedge a low level of volatility to people who were unwilling to ever touch weather-linked risk? I think that post-February, it's sort of uniform that there is real exposure to generating power at the right times or the wrong times and what that impact that has. So I think that was a primary impact. The secondary impact was just what tools, in particular, what settlement indices are, are viable for hedging going forward. So you know, I talked about early days of, of hedging and renewables, well, frankly, early days being up through January of this year. If you traded power with a bank, you were almost exclusively doing that on a fixed quantity basis. And so that meant that if the wind died when prices were high, or if your generation was out because you shut your turbines down for icing, or there was snow on your panels, and so it was sunny, but you couldn't generate, you still had to deliver the power that you pre-sold. So that what we call shape risk of your generation not matching some sort of fixed profile really became untenable for folks to hold or cut and otherwise, uh, certainly unfinanceable if you're looking for tax equity. And so that dramatically changed. And I think the hedging market is deciding how they want to respond to that, given that the fixed volume contracts are really off the table for, for most projects today. Relatedly, you know, we, we use or used prior to February a proxy generation index 
that eliminated a project's exposure to weather. So if the wind died at the wrong time or the sun went away at the wrong time, that was a risk borne by an insurer. But if your project wasn't operating, you know, if, if the fuel was there, if the wind was there and the sun was there, but you just weren't producing power because of an operational issue, that was risk that a project bore. I think post-February that you know, some element of that will remain for purposes of aligning interests, incentivizing projects to be resilient and to operate through high price events. But there were exposures that came out of pure proxy generation settlement that are that are unlikely to be attractive post-February. And lastly, a lot of the sort of CNIs that we talk to work with, I think similarly recognize that a pure traditional annual availability guarantee, which is more common in those sorts of contracts, it isn't great at aligning interest between buyer and seller of power, or importantly, on display in February in ERCOT, between the seller of power and the grid as a whole. Because if you've taken away the financial incentive and penalty to generate when power prices are high in specific hours, then there's no incentive to invest in weatherization or to operate when it might be not ideal for your project. And so I think we see the markets converging a bit in the financial parties finding ways to take risks that was more common in fixed volume swaps or proxy generation out of the project's exposure. While on the flip side, we're seeing the, the folks that traditionally bore all that risk without penalty, the, the CNIs in particular, asking for more aligned incentives in their contract structures. So long-winded way of saying contract structures are changing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a fantastic answer. And in addition to the changing contracting structures, ERCOT is considering various reforms on the policy side to its power markets. Do you have thoughts on the best reforms it could implement to prevent the types of outages and mitigate the types of price spikes that we saw during the winter storm, Yuri? That's a tough question. Uh, it's tough to keep up with what ERCOT's plan of the day is around, you know, consider a capacity market or consider a change in the cap to force certain levels of winterization. In general, I think that directing incentives uh, as opposed to man, you know, saying that everybody has to use this form of winterization, I think might not be the most effective use of capital overall, but making sure that there are A, incentives for folks to be, you know, both, you know, whether that's carrot or stick, to be uh, resilient, we're definitely uh, supportive of. We, we see those as requirements for contracts that we support. Uh, and I think the opportunity for the grid operators to, to do that themselves. But also, I think, and this relates more to things like bringing the cap down. You know, you want to create those incentives, but you want to make sure that, you know, in the event that there's a stick, that it is a stick that is viable, right? That it's encouraging, but but not taking the catastrophic financial risk out of non-operating events, I think is really important. So those are sort of dropping the cap amount and things like that are important to that. So I think that what I hope that the grid will do is fairly similar to what we hope contract structures will align around, which is protecting projects against catastrophic financial exposures, but ensuring they're financially incentivized to be resilient and as much as possible avoiding just direct mandate. But that's uh, the economist in me <laughs> coming out. Yeah, politicians aren't nearly as uh, rational as economists would like them to be, will they? <laughs> right. You don't ask me what I think about a carbon tax. <laughs> well, that's kind of what I want to jump into next, at least, is I think both you said, and we certainly believe here at Hannah Armstrong, that renewable energy is a means to an end. It's not an end in of itself. And the end that we actually want is a reduction in carbon emissions, because that will obviously help mitigate the climate change that we're already witnessing. To this end, you've recently launched a product focused 
on providing more granular information on emissions, and you're calling it locational marginal emissions or LME. Could you first talk us through a little bit about what you mean by that and how you do it? So locational marginal emissions is a data set at its core that is the per hour per electrical location, and by that I mean a generation node, what the carbon impact of one incremental megawatt hour generated or consumed at that location does. So whenever you produce power on the grid, the impact is that some other plant somewhere else on the grid shuts down for that incremental megawatt hour. Or if you, you know, increase your consumption at any location in the grid, somewhere, somewhere else in the grid, a plant is ramping up to meet that. So there's demand and supply balancing constantly. And so the consequence of your actions, whether it's generation or consumption, is that some other plant is, is doing something. And so based off of the grid topology, that can mean wildly different things at different locations and different times. So as an example, there are locations that are constrained in ERCOT where when it's sunny, there's basically more power being generated by solar projects in that location than can get to market. And so one more megawatt hour of solar at that location actually has no carbon impact. It just causes one other solar plant to ramp down. At the same time, Projects that you can demonstrably show are every incremental megawatt hour is causing a coal plant to shut down have enormous carbon impacts. And so this gets back to your point of renewable energy is not an end, it is a means to the end. Our end goal is reduced carbon. And so LMEs are a data set that provides the signal to do that as effectively as possible. When is it that charging and discharging of an energy storage asset has the highest carbon impact? Storage sometimes gets a bad rap of being a carbon-increasing technology because round-trip efficiency is less than one, therefore it is effectively a net load, causes more electricity to be generated, therefore causes more emissions. In some places, that's true. In other places, that's not. Because the ability, for example, to charge during those solar hours when curtailment is happening and discharge during hours when the sun is down and the coal plant is up, that can have huge positive uh, impacts from a carbon reduction perspective that aren't known unless you have granular data. And so carbon LMEs are our data sets to provide builders of renewable energy, buyers of renewable energy, storage, you know, anybody who is impacted by you know, trying to measure their carbon footprint and sort of maximize the impact of their future carbon-motivated actions, have the tools needed to do that confidently and effectively. And so your, your LMEs specifically get to the nodal level, so where the power is actually pumped onto the grid, so to speak. That's correct. And that's really the the main benefit of it relative to what existed before. So, you know, there have been lots of carbon data sets before LMEs. They were all regional of some variety. Some were national, some were ISO, some would get down, uh, you know, the, the most accurate data that we saw before LMEs was from uh, Rocky Mountain Institute's uh, or IMI's Watt Time. They did those at sort of the hub sort of zone level. And so the more granularity, the better. But the challenge was, is, you know, that example I gave you of the two solar projects, one is causing another solar plant to shut down and one is causing a coal plant to shut down. Those are both in West Texas. And so any other mechanism would look at those two projects as identical in their carbon value, when in reality, they're quite different and we should drive investment towards the highest impact opportunities there. And so that the nodal level is really what 
we, we just built on the progression that a lot of others had started with of taking it from the national level now down to the point where you are generated or consuming the electricity itself. And so how do you get buyers and sellers of power to care about this and to pay money for this sort of information, which I think we all realize is very valuable from an environmental perspective and a climate change perspective. But, you know, who are the primary buyers of this sort of information and how do you grow that market? Yeah, so there's really a waterfall here and it's led by sustainability leaders, right? So we co you know, launched this product in partnership with Microsoft. We've had other sustainability leaders, uh, Akamai as another company from a CNI buyer perspective, Hannon Armstrong for, for your own investment decisions. And so the starting point is the folks that started using this first were basically saying, hey, we, we understand that under current carbon accounting rules, we don't have to use accurate data. But we, I mean, this is where the, the problem that Microsoft brought to us in, in developing this data set was basically like, we, we know that our carbon uh, calculations today miss the underlying impact of what's happening because we don't have access to that data. We want to know what that residual carbon footprint is, which can be positive or negative depending on where you are, so that we are accurately tracking that footprint and then using that data to make the best possible decision. Where should we sign our next RFP? Should we invest in you know, transmission or storage instead of the next wind or solar project? And so the starting point has been those groups who are using that to really be thought leaders in that landscape. We see a response to that. You know, if you are building a project to sell or you want to attract investment from Hannah Armstrong, for example, you're going to want to know whether your project is a high carbon abating or low carbon abating relative to your competition in the grid. If you're going to offer a CNI buyer a PPA, you're going to want to know whether you're a top quartile you know, carbon impact or a bottom quartile carbon impact. So you know, the demand comes from the folks who are investing in buying the power. And, and you know, the, what follows on is how do you differentiate your asset that gets into your M&A strategy, right? Like if you're a developer and you're going to take it across the finish line, you want to make sure that the projects you're next developing are high in that landscape. So I think that's sort of phase two. And phase three, we hope, is that as a lot of ESG metrics have required to become more granular, you know, where we start is not where we need to be. And so I think the megawatt hour accounting that was used to drive, you know, RE100 and renewable generation overall has been extremely successful in its goal of bringing corporate buyers into renewable energy. But particularly now that we have high penetration renewables in many markets, it's not sufficient anymore. And so whether, you know, it's some combination of that emissionality concept of how do you measure emissions accurately as well as the load matching 24-7, 100-100-0. There's lots of different names for it, but how do you make sure that in your own grid you're, you're matching up? Those are the tools we're trying to provide to today, really the sustainability thought leaders, and we hope tomorrow, everybody. Yeah, and, and we here at Hannah Armstrong, we report the avoided emissions basically with every single one of the investments that we make. And that's why we care about your tool because we want to we want to measure that and we want to measure the efficiency by which our capital is used to avoid carbon emissions. But it certainly would be a lot more effective if we had a price on carbon, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that really drive folks to this product and and, and this data set? Yeah. And it, you know, if you were to put a price on carbon, it's it's LMEs or locational marginal emissions is how you would measure that in the same way that if you're trading power, you use locational marginal price. You know, we 
built locational marginal emissions to be the environmental equivalent of LMPs specifically because that's the backbone of the financial industry in, in energy. And we think LMEs can do the same on the environmental backbone of power markets. And so, yes, uh, you have my vote. I think it would be by far the most efficient way to, to drive decarbonization. But in lieu of that, I'll, I'll take whatever the Biden administration can do as the also ran. <laughs> well, we need you to get sit, sit down with uh, Senator Joe Manchin, and maybe then we can <laughs> move forward on that. But uh, uh, I don't think you'd take my invite, but I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> I'll be on the next flight to West Virginia. Excellent. Well, we're almost done, but first I want to move to the hot seat. So fill in the blank for the uh, following statements. The most important advice I've ever followed is? Do work that you're proud of other than your bank account. Success is? Doing what you love while meeting your financial obligations to your family. Aside from Climate Positive, my favorite podcast is? Well, it was The Interchange, but they shut that down. They've started a new one. So I have to uh, go to the new one and decide whether it's my new favorite. But it was it was The Interchange. The new one, Catalyst, is also very good. So uh, it, it, it's probably Glad my to favorite, too, aside from this. Okay. <laughs> um, the most insightful book or article I've read recently is? The Advantage. It's a book on the role of company culture. So uh, you are a Bostonian, uh, so I have to ask, Bill Belichick or Tom Brady? <laughs> well, I'm not originally from Boston, so I don't know if I have the right credentials for this, but Tony, who leads our, our product team, will kill me if I don't say Tom Brady. So I'm going to go with Tom Brady for my personal safety. <laughs> Excellent. If I weren't the CEO of Resurity, I would be? A marine biologist. I'm sure your parents will love that too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was my first career, but I had to abandon it. And then finally, to me, climate positive means? Leaving this earth better than how I arrived on it. Excellent. Well, this has been really fun, Lee. We got deep in the weeds, but it was really insightful. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. Much appreciated. Climate Positive is produced by Hannah Armstrong. Tell us what you thought about the conversation. You can send us show ideas by tweeting at us, at Hannon Armstrong, or send us a note at climatepositive at hannonarmstrong.com. If you like the show, feel free to give us a rating or share with a friend. It helps others learn about the show and our climate positive mission. I'm Chad Reed, and this is Climate Positive.